You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Hello and welcome to Sprogcast. I'm Mark Harris. This is Karen Hall and you're listening to episode 35. Uh, and on this episode, we cover birth trauma and postpartum psychosis. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction at pinterandmartin.com. Um, and we'd love to invite you if anybody out there is interested in sponsoring us. We've got some sponsorship packages which are now listed on our Facebook page. We've got uh, a sponsor that we're very happy with and we're keeping them. Uh, but we'd like to give other people an opportunity to support the work that we do. So if you're interested, get in touch. Quite good. I think if you've got an event coming up or something like that, you've got a little conference, a bit of training, something you'd just like to get out there to um, midwives and doulas and antenatal teachers. Um, remember, it comes out on the 25th of the month. So if you're doing something early in a month, it would be a good opportunity. This month we're looking into birth trauma and postpartum psychosis. For the most part, we're letting our interviews do the talking. Catherine yeah. Grant tells us a harrowing story of her own experience of postpartum psychosis, and she suggested we should give a trigger warning as it gets pretty graphic. I'd say listen and learn. Then we've got Alex Heath, who along with Mia Scotland and our own Mark Harris, has developed a technique for dealing with the symptoms of birth trauma. It's a busy episode. We've got masses in it. We're sorry if it runs a little long. We hope that you have something interesting to do, such as sit in the bath, go for a run, walk dog, and clean the bathroom. Those are all things I've heard people do while listening to Sprogcast. Uh, our listeners out there, they, they, they know they can fast forward our bit. Absolutely, they ought to. You've been talking to Alex Heath. Do you want to tell us about who Alex is? Yeah, Alex Heath is a clinical uh, hypnotherapist who has specialised in issues relating to birth. She's uh, here today to talk about that work. Alex Heath, thank you very much for being willing to be interviewed, Alex. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. To... Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your background, Alex? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and I retrained to be a hypnotherapist when my son, who's now 12, um, was about three. So I, 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 I experienced hypnosis uh, as a teenager, actually, as a student um, for all sorts of things. And I'd always uh, loved it. So when I wanted a more family friendly career um, with more meaning than my sales job, I, I, I made the switch, um, but because I was in that sort of family life stage, I found myself working quite a lot with um, with women and with with parents actually, not just women. Um, and I, I often taught hypnosis for birth, but it wasn't very long into that kind of experience of teaching hypnosis for birth. But I began to encounter parents who had had a difficult traumatic first birth experience um, and I really found with these parents the hypnosis wasn't enough to quell the fear that they had of child childbirth that the experience that they'd had was so bad um, that it had left a kind of mark uh, on on them almost and that they were were, were unable to move past that to hear um, a positive birth message or to hear uh, the hypnosis piece about birth so I had to really go back to the drawing board and consider what it was like for those parents that led me to a lot of uh, research about um, about trauma and um, about how, how that's formed from a neurological point of view and at the same time that this was happening I was using a technique known as rewind or fast phobia cure for my phobia clients so um, that's a you know phobia clients are a kind of a real sort of bread and butter for hypnotherapists and so I'd had experience and success with um, working this way with clients and um, I began to use the rewind process um, to help lift the fear and anxiety that these traumatized parents had uh, experienced and then with that lifted is what is what that enabled mark is is an opportunity a window of opportunity 
opportunity for them to start planning for a better birth next time. But it lifted the fear and the anxiety and the dreads and all of the heavy feelings until we'd lifted that. It, they, literally nothing else to get through. That was a really important part of my journey. And then is what happened next is my, my family got a bit older and I'd always, I've always been fascinated with birth. And I, I was hearing a lot of, of, of birth trauma stories. And because I, you know, because I, I actually had had quite good births myself, actually, I was very intrigued to understand what exactly was happening um, for a lot of people. Um, and I, I had an idea, but I retrained as a birth doula. I started attending births. So I, I did her training, and then is what happened is that I actually experienced birth trauma vicariously as a as a, a doula. I was I was a birth doula to two mums who um, unfortunately had very very traumatic births, and I witnessed that vicariously. And that really then was was like a missing part of a puzzle for me, Mark, because I was like, oh, now I get it. Now get what is actually happening and now I get why it's it's so traumatic and why it leaves such a mark on people and why it's so hard to recover from um, because I, I myself was finding it tricky to recover from. I was finding it really hard to, to go to my next birth cleanly with no expectation of, of, of it happening again. Luckily I could see it in myself that it was affecting my work and it was affecting the way that I was serving parents and so um, I worked with my supervisor um, in the same way to, 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 to lift those feelings that I was having. I, I worked with my own hypnotherapy supervisor. But it's what this really highlighted for me was how, how common um, birth trauma was, especially in a hospital setting. Um, and it also highlighted for me how actually as birth workers, it's really hard to work cleanly once. What I mean by that is it's, you know, really when we support a woman during birth, we really need to come as a completely free of any uh, expectations on, on that. And we need to be free of our own fear because... Not easy, right? No, and fear's an energy. It's, it's spreading. So if we, if we feel it, then the other person's going to feel it. And, it, it. and I was finding that this was the case. So... So I worked with um, my supervisor to, to lift those those feelings, but it also just made me think, actually, do you know what? There's a real place for all birth workers to have these skills, for them to be able to work um, with their clients and to work with each other. Um, and so that's when, when I started teaching the, that process to um, birth workers. What percentage of uh, women are affected by birth in a, an adverse way? Uh, there, there is quite a lot of research, but there's not like a, there, there's lots of small, small pieces of research that have, have been put together. So um, collectively, uh, from this research, there is a st statistic that around 30% of all parents will describe their birth as traumatic. 30%? Yes. That's a lot. It's a third, yeah. That's a th when you think in Leicestershire alone we have 10,000 births, that's yeah. a lot of women, right? Is it is yeah, and so that bears out in numbers terms. That bears out in about 272. Hundred thousand um, births a, a year in the UK, and the thing is, is what happens for for many for many parents. They don't they don't seek treatment because they're not aware that, aware that it's a thing. They're not really aware. And obviously, for somebody who's gone through a trauma, if you'd had a plane crash, you know, you'd get off that plane and and every sympathy would be afforded to you, and you'd have people falling over to offer you therapy and counselling and support and you would you know but with birth we almost have an expectation that it's going to be bad so when it is and parents struggle we kind of go oh yeah what do you expect uh, birth is bad isn't it yeah I mean I'm guessing I'm guessing I'm guessing Alex though that some of those 200,000 just heal some of them do yeah definitely but it's quite interesting is what is what happens is is that you, the, the trauma is assimilated but is what I often see in parents sometimes years and years on like five or ten years on is that it has affected their sense of self and it's affected the way that they've parented and their sex life and relationships I'm guessing Massively, it's it's in the top three of, of effects is that it affects intimacy yeah definitely yeah huge well, what, what what do you do then that, that kind of potentially supports 
women and their partners? So as a birth doula, uh, I obviously use the, the three-step process that I've, I've developed and honed over the years with clinical psychologist Mia Scotland. Well, as a doula or a clinical hypnotherapist, really, um, it's about understanding, first of all, what somebody has been through and how it's affecting them. So sometimes people will really want to share their story. And in these cases, I believe that it's really important that their story is heard, that that their pain is acknowledged and it's and that it's validated because there's so much dismissal that goes on in our culture around a difficult birth. Um, you know, there's a lot of guilt and shame that's put upon parents that's, that, that, in my opinion, is very wrong. So I believe that there's an important opportunity when somebody is willing to share their story that they're heard completely without critique, without judgment, and that their that their experience is, is acknowledged and their pain is validated. Um, it's a difficult experience. And then the, there is a, a process whereby, you know, it's good to understand how those feelings that have uh, are there because of that birth, how they have, um, how they still continue to affect someone's day to day life. And then really thinking, how would it be for them if they didn't have those feelings? What changes would they begin to experience if anxiety was lifted, if the hypervigilance was left, if the anger was gone? If, if the if the guilt was was no longer there, any, whatever it is, because it will be different for every single person. The rewind technique lifts those feelings and then provides an opportunity for them to experience their future selves with those feelings in place. Um, and obviously, when we're very relaxed, that's when learning happens rapidly. That's when we assimilate new information and absorb it deep um, inside. Uh, which is impossible when we're in a state of anxiety. We, we you know, we're, we're in a different zone. Um, there are some nuances with birth trauma that really need to be acknowledged and need to, that you, that, that, that there's a way of working that needs to be um, in place in order to make it very safe um, and accessible for, for parents. Where can people find you on the internet? I have my uh, website, which is www.traumaticbirthrecovery.com, and on there is a list of practitioners that I have um, trained. Now, it's worth saying that I only train birth workers, and I'm very passionate that it should be birth workers rather than therapeutic, traditionally trained therapeutic professions that help parents and that and that's a quite controversial thing to say but i stand by it the three-step man rewind technique you know has managed to acquire uh, insurance cover for non-therapeutic birth workers who are trained in the three-step rewind technique yeah i've been training birth workers now since oh, golly uh 2016. Together we've trained over 150 birth workers and these are doulas, they are midwives, so there's six NHS hospitals that are, are trained in and are actively practicing this process, um, but also antenatal teachers, um, uh, health visitors, as well as psychologists and counsellors that also um, have done the course. Six NHS hospitals have um, taken this training now, and they're yeah, and they're they're up and running and using it. Unfortunately, it, it's via a pathway of referral from obstetricians, but um, it still it still is accessible to mums who um, have extreme tocophobia. Uh, if you were talking to health professionals, you know, midwives, health visitors, what symptoms should health visitors midwives be looking out for the pro problem is with with any kind of trauma is that there there are um three different sets of symptoms and they're actually uh, two of them are in uh, a complete opposite so it can be confusing so there's a very avoiding set of symptoms which which to be honest we as as birth workers you know we don't really get to see a lot of because these people are really doing their very best and utmost to hide yeah because they're not talking about it right and more than that mark they're really avoiding any situation where birth might come up so they will not watch a birth program they will not go to a mother and baby club in case there's talk about birth so for these people it's a very isolating experience and and though the symptoms including in that that can be you know a, a sense of real sadness um hopelessness um sometimes there's there's memory loss uh, that, that's categorized under that um that avoidance uh um category of symptoms on the other end of the spectrum there's the um uh, the the the, the uh, recurring symptoms and these are things like anxiety recurrent thoughts panic attacks nightmares 
flashbacks, um, hypervigilance that can all um, that, that can all really take a toll on somebody. They're very exhausted to be living with that level of anxiety day in day out, and to have to look after a baby. Um, uh, and, and it can really negatively impact um, parents. And I think you point out that although 30% of couples talk about birth as traumatic, only 10% will go on to get a diagnosis of PTSD. That's right, somewhere between 5 and 10%, because the full criteria for PTSD is quite full. But you only need to really be experiencing a few symptoms from, from that list for really it to be quite, you know, really negatively impacting on life so it doesn't need to be full-blown ptsd for it to be bad is what no, absolutely and a lot of the people that um so the people we train come into contact with won't have a diagnosis of ptsd no. but their lives will be being influenced by what they perceive as a trauma really the clue is is, is if, if someone approaches you and they and they say i feel this way and so they might be saying oh, i've got I've, I, you know i've just i've got this problem with panic attacks and i have them in this situation they always and they've got much worse now i'm having and then if you if you ask then ask the question how long have you been experiencing this and they say oh it all started when when my daughter was born or it all started when because this is the other thing, just to quickly make clear, is that we talk about birth trauma, but actually this includes all trauma that can happen through the perinatal phase. So during pregnancy, which is more common than you think, um, during birth, obviously, but postnatal depression, uh, postnatal trauma, breastfeeding trauma, you know, sleep deprivation trauma, these can all actually have uh, real negative impacts. And we're so used to going, oh, yeah, that's just parenthood and dismissing it, that it's very unhelpful for parents that are experiencing. Now, in closing, Alex, can you can you tell us, you, have you got any trainings coming up? Yeah, I mean, you can see the full list of training on um, the www.mamlearning.com page. And there's a lot out there, actually. Um, so go and have a, a look. There's courses um, in the southeast, in West London, where I practice, um, but also in the East Midlands and in Birmingham, all coming up. So um, do do go and check it out. The thing that I love most about um, uh, sharing these skills with birth professionals, Mark, is hearing from them about the success stories they've had. It's, it's I mean, it is it's quite a beautiful thing to because they're easy to learn they're easy to deliver and they are transformative for parents cool alex thanks for taking the time today i'm certainly proud to call you my partner and uh we from sprodcast wish you all the very best thank you bye There was one thing you didn't ask her about, Mark, and I know that I we'd, we'd planned some questions in advance, so this is entirely my bad, but I was interested in any studies that have been done. No, there isn't any. If There isn't any studies done that I'm aware of in terms of its efficacy. There is a lot of anecdotal um, evidence. I mean, for example, I think we've trained upwards of 138 people. A portion of them have been clinical psychologists working in the NHS, um, all pretty much reporting um, high levels of success and satisfaction with the technique itself. But there aren't any studies done, just like there aren't any um, indications that the rewind technique causes any ongoing problems. Right. That's interesting. I mean, Mia is a clinical psychologist who is independent. And with all of her training as a clinical psychologist, she uses the rewind technique because, and she wasn't taught that as part of her formal uh, background, she uses it because heuristically it works, seems to work better than anything else she's ever used. Um, whether or not we could do any decent studies on the rewind technique, I think that's debatable because the variables, certainly in the context of a randomized controlled trial, would be massive. So we'd have to do some other kind of methodology in order to uh, test it. And I think the more people that are trained in it, the more, you know, the, the higher the likelihood is that we could, you know, have the numbers to do some kind of study. Yeah, I think that would be really good. I, I, I do have some reservations. Uh, why do I say that? I, I think a lot of the pushback uh, when it comes to the technique is from professionals inside the NHS who seem to have a bit of a defensive response to a technique that 
appears to be effective. And I don't understand why that would be. But interestingly, that's often an argument given by people who support um, therapies that are clearly non-evidence-based and don't have any biological basis to say, mm. oh, well, the people pushing back against this are the ones who have ownership of of kind of other clinical medical techniques and they don't want to and they're too close-minded and blah, blah, blah. And I think actually it, it's a it's a weak argument. Really? I don't think it's that weak an argument. I, I, it's a similar argument to... Uh, the pushback against homeschooling coming from educationalists. It, it, it's those that have a vested interest in the status quo that are pushing back. I think it's still fair to ask for evidence. I have no vested interest in the status quo, but I'd like to see evidence. If a man comes to me who's having uh, trouble sleeping, uh, flashbacks in relation to a birth, he goes through the rewind, three-step rewind technique, and he no longer has those flashbacks and trouble sleeping is that evidence no it's one anecdote all right if there are many of those is that evidence if it's done in some formalized way that excludes other variables i think that you have quite a strong position about evidence and that's not the only position what do you mean by that well i'm saying we we it would be good to have some evidence for this and your reaction to that has been really quite strong and defensive. Maybe it's been strong and defensive because I, I, I think the call for evidence isn't necessarily based on any evidence that, that, that for example, the rewind technique is causing any, any harm or damage. So, so therefore, given the weight of um, anecdote in terms of it being helpful, uh, I, I don't get the concern. Well, it's not about whether or not it causes harm. It's about whether it just does good. Yes, the fact that it, it doesn't appear to do harm is great. But that do people pay to do this? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, unless, unless they're having it done inside uh, an NHS service. And there, there, is, there are about three or four places in the country where it would form part of what the NHS offers in maternity units. If it's provided by the NHS, then everybody's paying for it. Yeah, true. Anyway, it just—it's an interesting question, and I—I I feel like um, an, an evidence base would would help to, you know, generate interest in it. I, I'm still smarting a little bit from your comment about my strong p- position on evidence. I'm not—that's your strong position. <laughs> what is it? What What do you perceive that it is? Well, I think over the last three years, every time I've said there ought to be a bit of decent evidence on this, we've had a discussion about the epistemological nature of of knowledge or something, and. Yeah. Actually, I, I'm not in agreement that evidence doesn't have value. I think evidence has value. So why don't we need evidence for this? I, but I'm madly focused on evidence. My problem when we start talking about evidence is usually because of the power holders within the birth environment, usually we're talking about counting stuff. Hmm. But you also mentioned vested interest. And I'm sorry, but if psychiatrists or um, whoever are charging people to do this technique, then they have a vested interest. Yeah, fair point. It's good that we've got this technique. So if anybody would like to provide the funding for Mark to do this research, please get in touch. Um, (laughs) So we would also... um, like to share with you an interview that we did with um, a mother who experienced severe postpartum psychosis and um, perhaps way beyond anything that Alex has been dealing with um, within re- with regard to birth trauma. But her um, experience, uh, Catherine's experience, came out of her own birth trauma um, as well as kind of her own personal medical history as well. And this interview, it really is quite quite difficult to listen to in places but Mm. it's worth the effort definitely um thank you karen um so i'm katherine katherine grant um or cat some people know me by um i'm a mum to my five-year-old son uh, james and married to tom who's a lawyer um i i used to be an economist in a a past life uh, but since um having james um, and the sort of postpartum experiences that, that we had, I've I've become more of a, a mental health campaigner, advocate, peer supporter, and, and more recently I now um, do some paid work in the mental health sphere uh, by doing mental health first aid instructing. 
Um, and that's great because that, that's going back into the corporate world uh, and taking my mental health skills and um, trying to make workplaces um, more more attuned to mental health crises, more mentally healthy places for, for people to work in. So mental health as a general interest has really grown for you. It really has. It's kind of taken over my life. So what, what kicked off the interest in mental health? I suppose it is, it is childbirth related, postpartum, maternal, perinatal mental health, which is my, my main interest. But I, I should confess that um, that I have had experience of, of um, previous mental illnesses myself, so depression primarily. Um, but I wasn't, um, I was never an advocate or a campaigner on, on sort of depression issues because I was very, I was very embarrassed by it. I, I didn't want people to find out. I um, I was worried that it would affect me professionally more than anything. And I, I was very secretive. And I, I used to try and adopt all sorts of coping strategies to make sure that my line manager, HR people never found out about it. So I would when I was depressed, I would I would work horrendously long hours just to get the work done, and um, because of course my brain wasn't really functioning the way it, it could do, um, and I yeah my social life suffered, uh, my relationship with my my now husband um, suffered, um, but I got through it. Um, I know now uh, thanks to the perinatal psychiatrist that, that treated me um, for the postpartum stuff. I know now that actually what I had, or what I have rather, is bipolar disorder. So I, I live with, with that chronic mental illness. Um, and I can see now looking back that during my, my 20s and perhaps even my teens, that as well as having regular periods of depression, I also suffered from some periods of, of, of elevated mood or mania, um, the psychiatrist would call it. Had a lot of ideas, a lot of um, a lot of ideas around how to make the world a better place and um would get very frustrated by people who tried to hold me back. Um, and I also made some very questionable spending decisions, like um, purchasing a horse on a, on a credit card, effectively, which uh, whilst you're living in central <laughs> London is really not a very sensible thing to do. And um, it seemed sensible at the time, but obviously looking back with hindsight, it was probably um, a slightly manic um, manic episode that precipitated it. Oh, um, yeah, so that, that, there's that experience of mental health, mental illness. And then obviously um, when I was pregnant... Um, whilst the pregnancy was absolutely healthy, happy, uh, didn't want any mental health buttons or, or, or tick boxes ticked that, that, that would have you know, put me on any kind of special pathway. Um, I, I, unfortunately, the, the bipolar disorder did catch up with me in kind of conjunction with a whole lot of other things. So birth trauma, as I talked about um, at the birth trauma conference recently. Um, sleep deprivation, perhaps some genetic factors as well. Um, that we could go into if you like mm. um yeah I had a whole unknown to me I had a huge amount of risk factors that were all were all pointing towards um postpartum psychosis which is unfortunately what happened do you think that um the fact that you'd coped by hiding it for so long meant that none of those predisposing factors were picked up by, by you or by anybody else yeah, I mean, there's a number of reasons, I think. I, I think because I'm so used to telling people that I'm fine when I'm not, I mm. think that, that that probably contributed to, to it. I think as well as having um, a high, high physical pain threshold, if you like, which um, contributed to my, um, you know, very long, horrendous labour uh, with no pain relief or no epidural, even though it was offered to me again and again. I think maybe I have a um, quite a high threshold in terms of telling people when I'm not well mentally. Um, so yeah, towards the end of my pregnancy, when I was getting very tired, as a lot of people are towards the end, um, and perhaps getting more anxious as well, because I had a lot of trips in and out of the, you know, the maternity assessment unit, thinking that I was in labour when actually I wasn't. But it was you know, probably by the expanding bundle of maternity notes, um, an astute midwife might have picked up on, on the fact that I was getting very anxious. Mm. I think, to be honest, the main co- contributory factor is the, the fact that I didn't want to be seen as high risk and I didn't want any any, any kind of special pathway to be applied to me. Um, and because I never saw the same midwife more than once. I mean, not just during the, the long labour itself, you know, um, four days of, of labour where different people were coming in and out, you know, midwives and obstetricians, but also the, the whole nine months of the pregnancy. I um, I technically had a named midwife on, on the front of my notes, but I, I think I met her once in the whole nine months. And I, I just saw a succession of, of different people who were filling in, agency workers, 
different clinics. Um, yeah, and, and I, I don't think I saw the same midwife more than once at any point. Um, so yeah, it was a really confusing time and certainly there was no one person that would have picked up on, on things like increased anxiety yeah. and, and sleeplessness. And, and because you're keen not to have those mental health tick boxes ticked. I just wanted to be normal. I wanted everything to be perfect. I had that classic kind of, you know, middle class mum tendency towards high expectations of how everything was going to go. And, um, you know, I had the had the lovely setup, the the house and we had a new car and um, lovely nursery and we'd done all the NCT classes and I'd read all the books. You know, everything was in place uh, apart from my mental health. And so that in itself sounds like another predisposing factor, having those huge expectations and that your picture is going to be even more perfect. Yes. So, of course, when it isn't perfect and, and, um, I mean, I'll come on and and, and describe just how unperfect it was. When it isn't perfect, the the sort of crushing... um, not just disappointment and for me it went far beyond disappointment mm. it was it was um crushing shame more than anything uh, despair agonizing guilt um really really dark um emotional state that i that i got into um you know even when i was fairly lucid um when i wasn't actively hallucinating the the shame that i felt was was absolutely crushing so this this sounds worse than anything you've previously described. Oh yes, yeah. I mean this um, this was off the charts. If you, you know if you were mapping my mood over my life, I was kind of you know who knows if I was you know bipolar or not. But I was certainly you know had mood swings. Uh, but this um, psychotic episode um, that they call postpartum psychosis was yeah off the charts. It. it um, um, I mean, if you'd like, I can sort of explain a little bit about how it started and, and, and what it involves. I don't it, know if, if you're, you're happy to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I should just give the preamble, the trigger warning. Um, it is very distressing and I, I, I can talk about it because I'm, I'm used to talking about it. And I, I, I speak about it matter of factly, but it, it is quite morbid. I should just warn your listeners. About OK, that. thank you. Yeah, so started off... Um, Essentially, like a lot of new mums, um, first time births, back to back, very slow to progress labour, which ended in an emergency C-section. Um, so far, so, so so common, unfortunately. The problem for me was that by the time the C-section uh, was instigated, um, I was exhausted. I'd had a very long back to back labour, um, several nights at home of no sleep and then several nights in the maternity um, wing of, of no sleep. And, and my uterus was was exhausted as well as, as my general um, state of mind. Yeah. Um, so sadly, during the C-section, whilst I was expecting it to be very um, straightforward, you know, by the time um, they actually got to the point of, of trying to get the baby out, he was absolutely um, wedged in and stuck, and my uterus was was bleeding quite badly. So I was having this kind of very very frightening kind of near death type experience where I was hemorrhaging and I was also quite convinced that the baby wouldn't wouldn't make it because he'd been stuck for so long and in my mind that you know c-sections are over in minutes I'd seen them on the tv and the you know the one born every minute program and I was kind of expecting him to be out and then when it took them a long time to to leave her out um you know I was convinced that he would have died yeah and I guess that was the, the first traumatic thing that maybe precipitated the you know the psychosis um when James was born and, and thankfully amazingly he came out with a perfect APGAR score hail and hearty baby um but obviously by that point I I, I myself was, was still bleeding and, and and very unwell and then the second sort of traumatic thing that happened was I, I basically just felt myself um, leaving the room and you know heading towards a kind of bright white light which is sounds really corny like in a film but it, it that that was my experience of it um and I remember my husband he was at the head end um you know having to hand the baby back to the midwife because he needed to, to sort of stay with me and squeeze my hand and I I remember thinking okay this is this is really bad but at least the baby is safe um so the second yeah second kind of very traumatic thing was was thinking that I was going to die. Yeah. Um, and so, but I didn't, obviously. Um, I got wheeled around um, to the HDU, the high dependency unit, with um, it, a large blood loss, not not the worst that I've heard of, but about about three and a half litres of, of hemorrhage, um, we found out later. 
so yeah really really not in a, in a great shape but alive and, and still lucid at this point despite the kind of near-death type experience um, and then the, the timeline is a little bit hazy because I always think it happened within a few hours I think it was perhaps more like um, within 24 hours but at some point when I was still in the high dependency unit being looked after by these amazing midwives I have to add they were seriously the hardest working people I have ever ever witnessed um I um yeah I, I basically became psychotic and it, it wasn't like um a psychotic episode where I was running around um you know screaming and shouting it was it was catatonia um so I the first experience was I I wouldn't respond to the nurses they had sent my husband home by this point to rest and they noticed that I um that I wasn't responding to them that I was lying in bed with my eyes open but but completely catatonic. What was going on in my head was that I was hallucinating and I was experiencing, um, so hallucinations are basically um, a sort of distortion of your, your, your mind, but, but very sensory, obviously. I was seeing and hearing things that, that were not based in reality. Um, and the hallucinations that I, that I then experienced um, we're all around dying effectively so I, I hallucinated that the the midwives looking after me were um were talking about how I was going to die and how I was going to um, die quite violently and I, I saw them or hallucinated seeing them put on green scrubs and face masks because they were going to be having to process a dead body I saw them pull the curtains around my my bed um, and I hallucinated the fact that my stomach was somehow expanding and about to explode. So I was kind of just bracing myself for this really agonising, violent death. Um, and I, I think the easiest way to describe it is I was scared stiff, hence the, hence the catatonia. Um, and of course, some of that is based on reality, because obviously there was lots of nurses around me and they were all very concerned and you know, my stomach even was still quite distended because I'd had this horrendous um, C-section experience. Um, but yeah, clearly a, a lot of it was hallucination as well. And yep. then, and then when Tom, my husband, and my my sister Jennifer came came in, um, the hallucinations continued. But I I was also quite delusional at this point as well. So the other um, main symptom of, of psychosis is, is hallucinations and also delusions, which are again distortions of thought, but or distortions of, of mind, but but based on your thought processes uh, rather than sensory things. Um, so my delusions, um, when when Tom was in front of me and I could sort of see him at the corner of my eye peering over me, I thought that if I um, if I speak to this this person. And he turns out not to be Tom, but just some other doctor or member of staff. Then the last 10 years of my life uh, was all a dream and that I'm, I'm just kind of waking up into this horrendous reality. And the reason I didn't respond to them was like, I didn't know what to do. I was so scared that if I talked to them and they turned out not to be who I thought they were, I, I would sort of I'd have my eyes open to this horrendous matrix style nightmare um so that that was the first psychosis and that that was horrific but it didn't it didn't last that long I think yeah a couple of hours and I I fell asleep like a lot of people do and um woke up and I, I was lucid thankfully and I, I found myself in a side room by this point I'd had my blood transfusions and I'd had a few hours sleep um and I I, I was able to, to talk and I, I was kind of a bit confused by what had happened but People were very relieved that I was awake and, and lucid and they, they seemed to be quite satisfied by that. So nobody at that point um, thought that I had postpartum psychosis. They just kind of put it down to the horrendous physical condition that I was in and the lack of sleep that I, I'd had. So, yeah, a day or two in the side room and I was I was wheeled down to the, the regular postnatal ward. And um, and yeah, we spent um, we spent six nights in that four-bedded bay in a very, very busy, large postnatal ward, uh, which I describe to anybody who asks as like the seventh circle of hell. Families and other mums and babies and balloons and, um, you know, celebratory things and, and paediatricians running around. And, and again, like the staff were amazing. They were all working so, so hard, but they were so overstretched and nobody really stopped to... Um, or, or nobody really monitored, I guess, the fact that I was I was sort of 
left in that postnatal ward and, and I wasn't able to sleep there. So again, it came back to um, just being unable to, to relax, being unable to sleep, even though James was a, a really good baby right from the start. And um, he was he was feeding and sleeping really well. My anxiety was, was telling me that there was something dreadfully wrong with him and that I, I couldn't sleep even if, if he was. I would just kind of be looking at him the whole time. And again, I think like that's so common for new mums to yeah. be too anxious to sleep. But um, I think for me, sadly, maybe because I was prone to this psychosis happening, um, it just kind of escalated and it got to the point where, you know, and I can look back now and I can see the escalation and how anxiety can quite easily turn to um, suspiciousness, for example, um, when it's combined with sleep deprivation, exhaustion. Um, I still had an infection you know there was all sorts of other things going on but yeah by the time we persuaded them to let us go home after about a week the anxiety and the suspiciousness would they'd kind of gotten beyond a point of no return so I, I even at home and my you know my family were desperate to get me home because they thought that at least I would sleep if I was in my own bed I couldn't rest even there I remember that the one night we were at home I was just pacing around going up and down the stairs um, saying strange things about cot death and not even able to trust my own parents with with the baby and so yeah getting quite paranoid I guess at that point as well looking back I'm, I'm quite proud of myself because the, the the thing that I managed to do was basically that after that horrific night at home was to tell my dad and my husband something along the lines of well with the last bit of sanity I have in my head you need to get us back to hospital Obviously, my family were quite reluctant at first because they, they just wanted me to be at home, to yeah. rest at home, for everything to be okay. Um, they didn't want to go anywhere near that hospital because it had been such a source of, of um, you know, pain and, yeah. and, and suffering. But we, I, I insisted, and I, I think my the lucid part of my brain knew that I, I wasn't right and that this was going to get a lot worse. Um, we went back to A&E in the same hospital, luckily was seen by uh, the same psychiatrist that had seen me when I was catatonic in the high dependency unit. And he, at that point, started thinking postpartum psychosis, mother and baby unit um, and, and perinatal psychiatry. And, and that was incredible because from that point, um, it, it was made very clear to me that if I didn't go to the mother and baby unit at, at the hospital down the road, um, you know I'd, I'd be sectioned and um, my dad who's a doctor himself knew enough about the mental health act to know that he really didn't want his daughter to be sectioned so um so yeah we went we went we packed a bag and we went there straight pretty much straight from the A&E department um as voluntary patients it was horrific it was horrific for my family more than me at that point I remember the drive down to the MBU um Tom drove us himself me and the baby in the back and um I, I, I was navigating I was kind of following the directions plugging in the tom tom uh, I was quite calm and and and, and quite sane at that point and, and Tom was in a worse state than I was um but once we got to the MBU and I handed James over to the staff um I think I think my brain finally had permission to to become psychotic again yeah. um, because the the next few weeks in in the psychiatric hospital is just a, a massive blur of, of psychosis so hallucinations and delusions even worse probably than, than what I'd first experienced so and, I, and again I, I've talked to a lot of women that have gone through this and um it sounds completely outlandish, but actually it seems to be quite common from, from the ladies I speak to. Yeah. They're all around dying usually. For me, it was the apocalypse. I thought that I had caused the end of the world in some way, that I had um, I'd, that I'd killed everybody and that for some reason I was the last person left standing. Um, I thought that I was being punished um, by the few remaining people that were alive in the world. I thought that I was locked in a, a small room and that um, I'd never be let out. Um, I thought that I was, yeah, I, I think it was, again, coming back to shame and guilt, the, the, the reality of the, the shame and the guilt I, that I was feeling, the psychosis sort of ran with and, and turned it into something much, much bigger. And, um, yeah, it, the psychosis gave me a, a, 
lots of sort of different scenarios whereby I was being tortured essentially and then um, yeah it was horrific but um, I was in the right place that's the that's yeah. the positive spin on this I was in the mother and baby unit and and I was in the right place and more importantly James was in the right place so he um he was completely unaware of anything that, that was happening with his mum he was looked after so well by the the nursery nurses and the staff in, in that amazing um MBU and um and yeah we got through it it had to get a lot worse to get better but eventually the the drugs start to work and um yeah I gradually became less psychotic wow what a journey <laughs> it sounds so confusing and terrifying Oh yeah, that's a good word. It's definitely it's terrifying and funnily. I have to say funnily. It's it's funny looking back. I think when the the antipsychotic medication started to work and take effect after some weeks, um, the the hallucinations and the delusions kind of gradually got a little bit more realistic, um, and those are almost the worst ones. So I I remember, for example, hallucinating that. My husband, Tom, bless him, was telling me that he didn't believe the baby was his and that he was going to leave me and never come back. And I saw him walk down the corridor of the hospital as if he was, you know, abandoning me there. And of course, that never happened. But the the hallucination is obviously a lot more realistic um, than the ones, you know, where I was you know, going to be cremated alive or, or, or killed in various ways. So, yeah. How common is it? I think um, Action on Postpartum Psychosis, a charity, would tell you it's about one or maybe even two in every thousand births. And that's the sort of population average. I think the alarming thing is that if you have a family history of, of, of the illness, if you've had, um, if you have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or any kind of schizophrenia type disorder, um, for example, that then your risk is much, much higher. So if I had known, for example, that my grandmother had had the illness, which she had in the 40s, then obviously I would have been a little bit more prepared for the, the risk that I had. And obviously, if I'd known that I had the bipolar disorder diagnosed, I, um, I would have known that my risk was something like one in six or one in eight, pretty high. And of course, if you know that, there's things you can do. So I would never have allowed myself to get so sleep deprived in late stage pregnancy and during the birth, because sleep deprivation is is a huge contributing factor. Um, And I possibly even would have taken some medication towards the end of the pregnancy, um, prophylactically. Um, And I think a lot of women who thankfully get some you know, preconception counselling and some perinatal mental health care when they're pregnant, you know, if they are high risk, they can do lots of things to to kind of reduce that risk and, and make sure that, you know, even if the illness strikes, that they're prepared for it and their families are prepared. So you didn't know that, that your history was a predisposing factor and a midwife who would have known it didn't know the history? No, not at all. And I mean, you know, sadly, um, we never knew about Grand's illness until, my, you know, one of my aunties mentioned it kind of after my recovery. Oh, this is interesting. Because that would just not be talked about, would it? No, it really wasn't. Not in um, not in Glasgow in the 1940s. No way. It's one of these things I think the general public should be should be aware of. Yeah. And, um, and hopefully destigmatize it so that you know if people are experiencing hallucinations or delusions that they're not afraid to go and seek help because um, obviously with, with postpartum psychosis the, the danger is that women the families they, they don't know what it is and they, they don't seek help because they're they're frightened paranoid um, and untreated psychosis is just horrendous and so this is now something that you talk about very widely because obviously the, the real theme coming across there is that people need to know about themselves and they need to know about the possibility for others as well. Yeah, and I think it helps if you, you know, if you, a recovered person can can stand up and, and talk quite quite calmly about it and, and, and show that, yes, she has recovered. And... Yes, that must be really helpful, actually very positive, because somebody feeling frightened and paranoid, it, it might be helpful to know that this isn't a permanent state and yes. there, there is stuff that can make this better. Definitely. And my husband would tell you, one of the most comforting things that, that helped him when I was first admitted, and he had, you know, when we first arrived that night, he thought that he was perhaps leaving me there for life. He didn't realise that it was something that I would get better from. Right. He thought that he <sighs> might end up a single dad with a, a wife locked up in a lunatic asylum. 
Um, and actually what helped him was seeing um, there was a particular lady there with a, a much older baby who was obviously coming towards the end of her time in the hospital and she seemed so normal. And I, I got to know her later and she she is completely normal and, and she just had the same illness and she was very unwell at one point, but she was packing her bags to go home. And I think for Tom, seeing seeing that family doing so well kind of, you know, reinforced what the doctor was telling him, which was, you know, Catherine's acutely unwell, but but we'll get her better and she'll be home within, you know, 10 to 12 weeks. Yeah. And she was spot on. I was, I, I think I had my formal discharge about 12 weeks later. I was not 100%, but I was certainly, you know, no longer suffering from psychosis. And yeah. And actually the other thing that, that also really helped was um, peer support. Luckily, the, the staff at the hospital signposted Tom to action on postpartum psychosis is online forum and um and I've read all of this subsequently and, and I am now trained to be a, a volunteer peer supporter on the same forum which is wonderful but um yeah Tom posted that I think a few days after I'd been admitted saying that he just had no clue how to react when he was there what to say to me when I was clearly being delusional um, and what kind of things he could do to help and um, the support he got, I mean, it went on for months and then um, was just wonderful because it was other dads who'd, who'd seen their wives through it or their partners. There was grandmothers, there was aunties, women, you know, who survived it. And they all gave him such great practical and very specialist support. Yeah, I can imagine such a forum being the, the ideal way of getting that kind of support. Yeah, definitely. Because I think, you know, if he told any of his friends and, you know, he only confided in one or two people that he you know knew in the real world, um, they wouldn't have a clue because it's something that, you know, the general public have very little information about. Um, but no, the support he got on the forum was, was really helpful. So that was, can you say the website again? app-network.org.uk, I think. Um, it's a- Action on Postpartum Psychosis. So if people Google Action on Postpartum Psychosis, um, you'll see the link to the online forum. Right. Thank you. The, the PP one is it's really specific. I mean, we do get people on there that talk about postnatal depression and things, but we try and signpost them to, um, you know, specific PND type charities because we, there's one thing the charity makes clear um, it's all perinatal mental health, but postpartum psychosis is a, a separate illness to PND. It's not a, a more severe form of PND. Um, and I, PND is a horrific illness. I've, I've, unfortunately, I've seen friends go through it and it can be very, very severe and, and frightening and debilitating. Um, but it's a different it's a different form of illness to, to postpartum psychosis, which is why ABP is the, you know, is a a really important charity. Okay, thank you for telling me that. I think um, just having that incredibly graphic description of what it was like for you is 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 really really deeply. I mean, it's moving, but it's educational as well. Yeah, I'm quite passionate because I do have such vivid memories. I'm quite passionate about sharing them because I, I think people don't really understand often what an hallucination is like. And yeah, so I hope that's helpful. It, yeah, I should think it is. Most of the people listening are uh, midwives, doulas, antenatal educators, you know, people supporting women and the knowledge that you've shared with them is invaluable, isn't it? If, if that one in a thousand person comes across our path, we know what to do now. Yeah, it's one of these things. It's rare, thankfully, but it's not, you know, it's not that uncommon. So I think for a midwife especially, it's really important for them to know about it. Um, there's a lot more work to be done, but but we're getting there. Thank you ever so much for that. That's just brilliant and thank you for your time all right thanks Karen have a good day okay bye it's a very powerful story I I, you know I've worked with uh, one client in particular that comes to mind who suffered uh, pupural psychosis and it was quite disturbing being a carer because the shift in terms of uh, how a person was presenting inside, you know, as as their personality was quite profound uh, and disturbing. I had a friend years and years and years ago, and I didn't see her much around that time, but I know she suffered from this, and it meant nothing to me. This was before I was a parent or anything, and, and I didn't really have a, a grasp of what all of that meant. And listening mm-hmm. to Catherine was, in in many ways, quite sort of humbling and made me think wow that's just the profound nature of the hallucinations 
and and as she was describing them i i was imagining living inside the terror of that hallucination because don't, don't forget by definition you're not aware that you're hallucinating right until afterwards so i i um just intensely uh disturbing i think and uh, and i think we i think it, it bears saying that pupil psychosis is quite rare yes one in a thousand she said yeah and and there'll be many 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 more women and their partners uh who are who are suffering somewhere somewhere on that scale of suffering you know so so of course Catherine's partner uh, was suffering too you know he was wondering whether he would ever uh, get his partner back again and uh, if you, if you think back to the interview she was talking about how he used to visit the hospital and wonder whether he'd be a single parent all his life and she, whether she would gain her her um mental health again and it's difficult to to imagine that sense of kind of almost in, in in almost impending bereavement but with the person still alive i mean i think i think that's uh very powerful now what i i was suggesting was that of course on the sliding scale of suffering related to birth trauma there, there would be many many uh couples uh, women and their partners uh, who are experiencing symptoms as a result of a birth that they perceive is traumatic yes and that was the thing that um, came out of the birth trauma conference I think I remember Louise Perkins last month saying you can't define somebody's birth trauma for them I've listened to so many stories and, and some of it I think sometimes I, I suspect not almost a Stockholm syndrome effect of we've been through that with those people who were caring for us and can't fault their care they were wonderful and I'm listening to this story of, of utter trauma and thinking how can you not fault that I I know and I was doing a training the other day in Manchester and I think there were five midwives and a student midwife and a doula at this training and and one of the people at that training was expressing how frustrated they found it when a woman had what they perceived was a traumatic experience but the woman wasn't traumatized but what was interesting was that this this person in the training very very lovely was was finding it difficult that the client in front of her wasn't traumatized she was she was reflecting on the experience and thinking well my goodness if all of that had happened to me i would be traumatized and it was all that she could do not to not to instruct the woman in why she should be traumatized by that experience and that that for me points to that key principle is that it's the stories that women are living in after the birth uh, that create their experience of of the birth does that mm. make sense oh yeah yeah or, 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 or you know how they talk to themselves and to others about the birth depends on the story they're living in yeah and perhaps for that midwife it, she found it traumatic then that in itself is a valid experience for her yeah absolutely yeah absolutely this whole um, question of of care given to women in childbirth links us not very nicely i think to the article that we wanted to talk about which is humanizing birth does the language we use matter which has been in the bmj opinion blog yeah um february the 8th and linked on our website by natalie mobs Catherine williams and andrew d weeks this is the sort of thing we talk about all the time <laughs> I, and it's a good piece right yeah and I, I i think it's fab fabulous um the table of good practice uh, in birth communication does feel very much to me like totally obvious right it does but i don't think that's true for everybody some of the phrases example of poor language see i don't like the word poor language either what would you like it to say it's, it's a moral judgment being applied to the language but well, anyway, yeah, the that's... whole article is a moral judgment being applied to the language that's the point well I, I i don't know whether applying morals is is the way to go what about just efficacy because it works because it it leads to a result that seems to be inverted commas different um but different in a way that enhances people's lives i, I anyway that's me on a hobby horse. So examples of poor language, fetal distress, suggested alternative language, changes in the baby's heart rate pattern. So to just talk about what you're actually observing rather than to categorise it. Yeah, actually to, yeah, to, to not apply judgment. So some of this is about demedicalizing it and, and de-jargoning it. I can't believe some of this stuff. Good girl during labour. Do people actually say that? Yes. 
I don't know. Maybe maybe you just you just hope that um, maybe it's just a, a vain hope that professionals who are trained in in this area have more insight into the power that their language is having. I don't think this article would be necessary if that wasn't universally true. No, no, I think you're right, Karen. The table is interesting, but it's a bit of a boiling down of what it actually says in the article, which is quite a lot more nuanced and detailed. And this surely, as you say, should be just, this shouldn't even be good practice. This should just be what happens. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 for me, it's, it's a shame that we even have to draw attention to it. Anyway, so there you hey, go. We've already talked too much. Yeah, we have Your... talked far too much. I've just looked at Your the time. Fault. Um, so this is on on the Facebook page. Have a look. Send us your hate mail. We challenge you. Um, <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> be nice to get some, wouldn't it? That's all for today. Uh, we really hope this has been an informative episode about an important but difficult subject. Next month, we're talking continuity of carer. Let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter, because we always love hearing from you. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, if you leave us a review, that bumps us up the charts. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next month. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code Sprogcast at the checkout.